podcast is called Field Reports. In the history of ecology, we have a sense that we should be out in the field observing with our own eyes at all periods of time, and that's sort of the traditional way. We all want to be George Schaller. We all want to be Darwin. We all want to be out there. But the truth is that we simply can't be there. Hello, and welcome to the Field Reports podcast, where we talk about fieldwork and science. This is a special episode. We have an award-winning and a highly commended ECRs. Before we chat with them, I spoke to one of the editors of the Journal of Animal Ecology, Nathan Sanders, about the ECR award, the Sydney Manton Prize. Could you please tell us about the ECR award and, and why is it named after Sydney Manton? Yeah, the ECR award is just a way to celebrate um, the incredible research done by young researchers in animal ecology. I think that oftentimes we we find that we're attracted to papers by older, more established people, and we sometimes ignore new work by new, young, exciting, early career researchers. Yeah. Uh, the award is named after Sydney Manton, Manton because you know her work was outstanding, um, and I think that for a variety of reasons, in part because. Um, again, we ignore work by some groups of people that um, you know some people might not be aware of the work she's done, and so this is a way to celebrate her contributions to the ecology of animals as well. Great. Uh, I heard that she can write. She could draw, like using both both her hands as well, in a classroom. Yeah, I've heard that too. I mean, that would be really something to see. When I, when I first started teaching, there was a, someone who taught in the lecture hall just before me, who taught um, anatomy and morphology, um, and would have these incredible chalk drawings all over the chalkboard in multiple colors, and they're perfectly to scale. And there's no way I could do that, but I can't imagine being able to do something like that with both hands, like drawing <laughs> with one hand and labeling with another, but apparently that's what Sydney Mackin can do. <laughs> Right. So, how does one apply for this award, and what's the selection process like? Any, any early career researcher could apply for it. Um, as I recall, I think that they submitted um, proposals or, or summaries of papers, and then we made one cut. And then early careers then submitted, you know, reviews paper, review papers as well, and they had to pass editorial muster um, all throughout the process. Mm-hmm. We sent them out for peer review, just like we do with any paper, um, and then the papers that you know had risen to the top after that, after that series of hoops, um, were then evaluated by a series of um, subject editors from the journal, mm-hmm. all um, senior editors of the journal and the editor in chief, and they were essentially evaluated on their novelty, uh, um, whether they. Uh, laid out a clear path forward for the field um, and whether the paper seemed like it would appeal to the broad readership of the Journal of Animal Ecology. And it was really cool because it, um, we got so many good papers and we read so many good papers. Um, you know, it's the sort of thing where you can look at these and you just learn a ton of new stuff or you see an entire area that is summarized and synthesized in such a way that um, new insights emerge and you also can see a clear path forward. And for me, the really cool thing is that these papers were written by early career researchers, um, which just means that our field is in really, really good hands. 
Right, so you'd say those are the qualities of a winning paper. I think, yeah, I think a paper that, you know, displays novelty, that it's comprehensive, um, that it appeals to the broad readership, that it um, suggests a clear path forward for the field, you know, clear steps that some beginning PhD student could take or another early career researcher could take to really advance the field even further. Yeah, I think those are the criteria. Great. And, and for this year, uh, Ben Weinstein and Jenny McDonald, uh, their papers have been picked as the winner and the highly commended. Uh, could you tell us what in their yeah. work impressed the selection committee the most? Uh, both those papers really were just so good. Um, the Weinstein paper, the Ben Weinstein paper on computer vision for ecology, I think is just so cool. Um, you know, it, it outlines a way to take data from the field using, in some ways, it, it is at the heart of the Journal of Animal Ecology. You know, how do you census a population using aerial photos um, accurately, for example? Um, and I, I think it's just really cool, and it um, had a great suggestions uh, for future research and where the field might be going. Um, and how you know many of us are going to benefit from from the, this particular paper. Um, the Jenny McDonald paper was another paper that's right at the heart of the Journal of Animal Ecology's core string. You know, it's a, a long-term study of a population in the wild. Um, it looks at host host pathogen systems. I think again, it um, was a well-written paper. Um, that highlights really, you know, what the Journal of Animal Ecology has always been about, and that is studies of animal populations in the wild, trying to understand, you know, what causes changes in the size of populations. Um, again, both of these papers were, you know, at the heart of what the journal does, but they were synthetic, and they both provided clear steps for where the field could be going next. Right. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Nate. Now let's chat with this year's winner of the Sydney Manton Prize, Dr. Ben Weinstein. He's a postdoc at the Oregon State University. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Congrats on winning the award. Thank you so much. I'm very excited. What, what does it feel like? Did you, did you expect it at all? No, actually, I forgot that I um, was even up for such a thing, so I thought that it was some mistake. <laughs> Clearly, it's not a mistake. I was looking at your website and you, you seem to have a varied um, research interest. Could you tell us about your research? Yeah, so I think of my work as sort of three different tracks, and hopefully they all come together at some point. We have uh, traditional ecology of species interactions, interested in uh, uh, plants and animals and the evolution of mutualisms. And then there's statistical work on hierarchical Bayesian models for understanding and would predict interactions in nature. And then there's this third track of work on ecological data science and using computer vision and machine learning, uh, which is what this prize is for. And so the hope is that we can start moving towards a greater automation of biodiversity monitoring that allows us to answer questions like which species interact, where they occur on Earth, and um, stop uh, having to go into the field for every single interaction, uh, even though it's fun. Right. So tell us more about the uh, computer vision paper that you just mentioned. So, you know, I start from the idea that Observing biodiversity is hard. 
we have to be in the field for long periods of time to see interactions, which can be rare. Uh, species presence is hard to document. Uh, it can be dangerous both for observers and the animals themselves. And so we disrupt the systems we're interested in by being in the field for so long. Uh, my work is in Ecuador, and I study hummingbirds and, and plants. And uh, our field sites are off the grid. They are in fairly remote places. It's difficult to put people there for months and months it takes to actually gather enough data to be able to create models of, of biodiversity. And so we started to move through with this vision of, you know, what would it take to have some sort of automated monitoring setup? And that's um, been about a 10-year uh, excursion for me, maybe uh, since I started my PhD and really the work before that, of like how do we move towards an image-based analysis setup where we can start leveraging the decreasing costs of image capture, such as camera traps, video cameras, satellite data, to be able to go and find biodiversity um, without needing to send researchers in the field all the time. Um, I should say that my goal is not necessarily to replace field researchers. I love being in the field. But given the realities of being an academic, um, we simply can't be in the field for four, five, six months every year to gather the data we need to be able to answer the tough questions that lie ahead. So, so the motivation for this particular project started when you were a PhD, is that right? Yeah, even stop? before that, but basically um, at, during my PhD, I was studying hummingbirds and plants, and we had a very simple question with which birds interacted with which flower. Um, and so to do that, a traditional way you would do that is sit at a flower and wait for a bird to arrive. Uh, hummingbird visits are extremely fast, three to five seconds maybe. Uh, you might get two to six visits uh, every 12 hours if you sit at a flower. Um, and this is in uh, Ecuador. It's difficult to sit and watch a single flower for hours on end um, with no bird visitation at all. And so it was very difficult to scale up to the kind of data we needed to actually answer the questions of what kind of ecological properties the system had. And so I started developing a time-lapse camera uh, setup where we put up cameras at each flower. They take a photo uh, every second uh, from dawn to dusk, and the cameras are out for four or five days at a time. Um, and then designing software to watch those videos and finding the hummingbird visitation within the videos. And I published that paper in 2015. Uh, the software was called Motion Meerkat. And, you know, I was actually shocked with the level of interest. Within just a few weeks, I was getting dozens of emails from researchers. I, you know, how can I use this? Can I tweak it this way? What is it possible of extending that? And it became extremely obvious that part of my contribution was going to be developing these kind of tools and making them available. Uh, I've continued to work in that field, and, and uh, Motion Meerkat, the original piece of software, has over 500 downloads from almost every continent now, researchers uh, in, in all sorts of systems I never would have thought of, underwater, shark videos, vultures visiting carcasses, all sorts of things. Anytime you have a static object and you're waiting for an animal to arrive, that kind of motion detection has been really interesting. And as I started to work on this more, it just became obvious that there were tools in computer science and in engineering that we as ecologists were not yet embracing. Um, and so it was my responsibility to sort of become a bridge between those two sides. And so while I don't have a traditional background in computer science, it's something that I spend a lot of my time on because we need to be able to have these tools available to us to decrease the costs and to increase the uh, productivity of our ecological research. Right. Uh, so one of the or two of the other applications would be to count the number of individuals in, in, a, in a particular area and also to identify, right? So how, how do you, how, how does it work to identify, for example, a particular individual? 
So the, the, the sort of emerging field, right, once you sort of find an animal, you might be interested in describing it in some way by its physical characteristics. And so in the last several years, and this is sort of what the computer vision review paper was about, there's been a number of attempts to start developing tools for both individual recognition and species level recognition. Um, and, and there's been a real breakthrough within the computer science community using what are called deep learning neural networks. These are the kind of things that make self-driving cars work, they uh, uh, sort of power Google search and image search. And basically what we use is a, is a corpus of training data that says these images are of certain species, these images are other species. And through supervised machine learning, we can start to assign the probability that a new image falls into these image classes. And so trying to make these kind of tools available to ecologists is one of my primary goals moving forward. Um, I, in fact, sort of I mentioned Motion Meerkat earlier, that motion detection software. The next step, which I'm just publishing now, is uh, a classification algorithm that goes on top of that. So it says, hey, not just there's some new object in, in our video, but we can start classifying what those objects are. And so I've built a specific hummingbird classifier, and I've been contacted by a number of other researchers for classifiers for their own particular system. And so you sort of leverage the training data you might have, because uh, just for species classification, animals tend to look very similar. And then we can start building in that kind of classification algorithms into our, our motion detection, and we can start moving towards this automated setup. It's a very exciting time because these tools are available. It's just a question of us learning how to use them. You mentioned about Google there. So sometimes when you when people use Google, you can so they ask you questions, uh, identify pictures with cars or Android, for example. Uh, is that is that one of the algo uh, is that one of the learning algorithms? Yeah, Google has been a real player in this field in the sense that they've been incredibly generous uh, in releasing a lot of their code. Um, the machine learning environment uh, that I work in is called TensorFlow, uh, which started out as a product among Google engineers, and about two and a half years ago, maybe they released it as an open source program, and now it's anyone can use it. You can go on the GitHub and download the source code for TensorFlow. And there's been a number of wrappers built on top of that that's making it much easier to use. And so um, the algorithms that we are sort of putting into play all come from the commercial and private world. And it's just through their interest in open source development that they've made them available for users um, free of charge. Uh, it's been a, a, a quantum step forward in our ability to access high level algorithms. Do you or how do you uh, involve the community um, in gathering the data or teaching the uh, algorithm about what exactly is, is, a, is a hummingbird or what is not and how to identify it? I mean, you asked a good question. The, the next step is sort of scaling this to a place where everyone can contribute. Right now, individual models are trained. If you have a set of data, I have a set of scripts, and we can sort of merge them together. The future of this and the really exciting future of this is that we had some sort of web browser interface wherein either you're uploading images from your field site such that every hummingbird researcher would need to make their own model, or every tiger researcher wouldn't have to make their own model. We can start moving through what's called a model zoo, and we'd have these things available for you if you were a shark researcher. And so while there's always going to be some trade-off between the specificity of your particular project and a generality of a tool that works for everybody, the sort of next step, and something I hope we're working on in the future, is a way of some sort of community building. And that's going to happen through some sort of web browser structure wherein people can uh, both contribute their data as well as get models which have been pre-built. And that is definitely the exciting future because we're all trying to access very similar pieces of information. 
and especially at the highest level, it's a bear, it's the deer, it's a, there are um, sort of commonalities among all of us that we can leverage those kind of data. So we all don't have to be repeating our work. And what are the challenges um, involved at the moment in this research? So the, the, the three challenges, first is, um, I think the first challenge I would say is cultural, right? In the history, this, this podcast is called Field Reports. In the history of ecology, we have a sense that we should be out in the field observing with our own eyes at all periods of time, and that's sort of the traditional way. We all want to be George Schaller. We all want to be Darwin. We all want to be out there. But the truth is that we simply can't be there. And so trying to replace uh, human observation comes into a natural reticence, which is like a person can do a lot of these jobs better. And so it's not that we're trying to say computers are better than people, but if I gave you 100,000 images, could you really go through all of them? If I gave you 100 million images, could you go through all of them? And so when we start talking about the data sizes that we can start to collect, it's impossible to annotate using human observers. And so really at the same time, we have to say, okay, what's acceptable for our ecological goals? Given the question we're interested in, how much accuracy do I need? What error rate will I allow to have? And that what we have to do as a cultural community say, what is our acceptable level of classification error? And stop pretending, for example, that humans are perfect. I just reviewed a paper that showed that in reef fishes, that the deep learning neural network outperforms people by about four and a half percent. The network got about 94% of the data right, and the people got like 89% of the data correct. And so we have this sense, because we never check our, our, our observations, because usually we're alive in the field, that the humans are always correct. But really what we need to do is start saying, what's the acceptable level of error we're allowed to have? And then we sort of move forward from there. And that, I guess the, that's sort of the first one, is the cultural challenge. The second one is the technical challenge in making these tools available so that uh, ecologists of all computational abilities um, can access them. And that's sort of my responsibility as well as the, the community I'm trying to build around me. Um, there are other people really interested and dedicated to trying to broadening the access to these tools. Um, in some, it's crazy how far behind ecology is. Um, you know, I was mentioning Motion Meerkat, my, my first piece of software. The algorithm I put into play in Motion Meerkat was designed in like 2001. So it's not in close to cutting edge, but it was really useful for a lot of people. And so I think it's demonstrative of the fact that given the uh, expectations on ecologists, we simply all can't be high performance computer uh, experts. We all have to find our niche. And so it's about finding the ways in which we can bring these tools to a wide diversity of people um, and make it available, even if you don't know how to code a machine learning algorithm yourself. Uh, for, for our audience, if uh, if you're interested uh, in pursuing or reading up more about this topic, please uh, check out Ben's review paper. And Ben, uh, if, do you have any other sources that you would recommend for people that like to learn more about it? Yeah, I would just encourage people to look outside of our discipline and think about the kind of questions we're trying to answer and really reach to biomedical sciences, engineering, and other places that you see the kind of tools that are available. Um, just typing in uh, uh, image classification into Google, you get an incredible amount of resources. And so I would encourage people not to be intimidated um, by the, the, the sort of lack of information we have, but really embrace the idea that this is going to be part of our skill set moving forward. You know, I was told um, 20 or 30 years ago that if you needed some complex statistical Bayesian model, you might got a uh, statistician as a collaborator. And now that's just something that a lot of ecologists have sort of developed for themselves. And I hope that in the next 20 years, this will be something, image processing, uh, machine learning, 
that, that will be part of the scent canon for ecologists that, that want to be working in the field. And so I hope that we can all sort of step back and say, what is it that we can do to move towards a more automated monitoring and really create a more efficient data collection um, given the image processing tools that are out there? Absolutely. Uh, well, congrats again, and thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was Ben Weinstein, and this year's highly commended paper for the Sydney Manton Prize is by Jenny McDonald, Andrew Robertson, and Matthew Silk. And today we are lucky to have uh, Andrew Robertson, one of the ECRs involved in this project. Welcome to the show. Hi. Congratulations on uh, on winning winning the highly commended paper. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was um, it was a nice surprise and, and quite an honour. Really happy with the result. <laughs> So uh, you work on badger uh, disease ecology, is that right? Uh, yes, that's correct. Yes, borderline tuberculosis in European badgers in the UK. Uh, could you tell us more about it? Uh, yes, so um, so borderline tuberculosis is a bacterial disease um, that infects um, badgers, but it's also a big issue in the UK and other countries because it infects cattle, so it's a big um, issue for the farming industry. Um, and our study at um, Winchester Park, so it's a... It's a government-run study. It's been running for 40 years, um, and it's a long-term uh, individual kind of monitoring project where um, every year individual badges are tracked. And in each season, every individual is marked. We collect a whole range of samples, which we test for both organic TB. Um, but we also collect a whole range of individual uh, life history data, um, and it's also an opportunity to combine other kind of research projects on top of that to look at um, their kind of general ecology and behaviour of the badgers, um, yeah, and for fundamental reasons as well as uh, for reasons to do with TB. Right, uh, and, and and the paper that won the award uh, is also about um, it's it's a long term um, research project on disease ecology in badgers, right? Uh, could you give us more information about what the paper is about? Um, so the paper is about, so the project that I've just mentioned there, so the this Woodchester Park project is a long-term study population of badgers. The, the paper is a, is a review or a synthesis, really, of the, the range of research that has been done on this population um, over the last 40 years, so um, a range of scales. So because we, we monitor individual badgers over time, every individual is a non-individual, and we catch them at multiple time points throughout their life, um, we can do a range of studies um, looking at individual behaviour, in relation to disease risk, for example, um, and also population level studies to look at how the disease and other factors influence badger populations. Um, so the review really is a, yes, a synthesis that looks at the whole range of research that's been done um, on the disease side of things, but also more ecology generally, um, across that population for, for the last 40 years. So it's, it's a broad, um, broad review um, uh, summarising all that research. Right, so, so some of the variables that you suggest uh, uh, include social structure and their diet and their um, sex and age uh, and so on and how that affects the disease ecology uh, in this particular species, right? Uh, yes, that's correct, yeah. So there's been um, multiple studies on this population have shown that various different aspects of uh, individual kind of characteristics or behaviour are correlated with disease. So for example, um, disease is more prevalent in male badgers. Male badgers seem to be more susceptible to the disease than females. Um, there's also effects of age, so, so 
as animals age over time, they're more likely to acquire the disease and, and, and progress with the development of the disease. Uh, there's also correlations with um, individual kind of social behaviours, so badgers that range around more have larger um, kind of range of behaviour, badgers that use uh, kind of outlier dens or surfaces on the edge of territories, um, or badgers that range into other social groups more are all more likely to become infected so, um, or to have the disease. So um, there's clear um, correlations and relationships between uh, the individual um, behaviour of the badger, how it ranges around its territory and, and within the population. So really the, the, the range of studies we've done of, um, and that the paper kind of summarises are at the, uh, the individual level, so looking at individual characteristics of badgers and how that relates to disease, so things like I've mentioned, like age, sex, um, movement, um, and yeah, the territorial behaviour, social behaviour, and then also similar parameters at the social group level, so there's certain characteristics of badger social groups, um, which are relevant to the disease epidemiology, and then also some studies are modelling studies, which are more of a population level, so looking at um, general kind of correlations between badger population density, uh, weather effects, um, levels of movement in the population, and uh, um, factors like that. So it's, it's those range of scales that makes the population quite an interesting place to work. Right, and, and, and this study is, uh, like you mentioned, is a long-term study. It's be, uh, the data is from starting from 1970s. Could you tell us how you compiled the data and, and did you face any challenges uh, in compiling the whole work? Oh, so the challenges with compiling such a large data set. So, um, so I guess, so as I mentioned, the badges are regularly tracked um, four times a year, or four trapping operations per year, and we record a whole range of individual data on every badger, and then samples are sent off to the analyzer. So um, to date, we've had over 15,000 capture events of more than 3,000 different individuals. So that creates yeah, a massive amount of data that we can do some kind of quite cool science with, but it is a bit of a challenge to keep all that data together. Um, it's currently just in a large database, but because it's such a long-term study, things have changed over time, different things are recorded in different ways, using different terms, so it, it can be a bit of a challenge to keep all that data kind of tight and neat and easy to access. Right, right. Um, yes, but it's, it's quite a good resource to work with. It is quite remarkable, actually, that amount of data. Um, okay. Oh, yeah, for a long-term study, it's quite impressive. Yeah, yeah, it is. And how do you how do you individually mark these badgers? How do you identify them? Every individual badger is tattooed on their kind of abdomen or, or stomach. Um, so the badgers are caught, they're anaesthetized, and um, they're shaved on the belly, and then they're tattooed with a large kind of number and a letter. So might be seventeen F or something like that. Um, yeah, so they're all individually marked that way, but it does mean you can only identify a badger by you know knocking it out and flipping it over. <laughs> you yeah. can't, we can't put tags or anything like that on them. Congratulations again, and thank you very much for being on the show. Ah, thank you very much. It's a yeah, pleasure to be here. Nice speaking to you. That was our episode. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and visit the Journal of Animal Ecology's website. See you next time.